So, all right, foundations. Week eight, consummation. As you know, consummation just means kind of like a wrapping up, right? The fulfillment of all things. Now, what I want you guys to see so far... What I want you guys to see so far that we've done is we have basically traced through the history of redemption. That's, that's what we call it. All of, all of the history of the universe, okay, is as Christians, we look at it as the history of redemption. Um, the history of, of everything that has happened um, in our relation to God. So um, we started with, with in the beginning, right? Genesis, in the beginning. So we just... Before anything was, God was. And we looked at God and who he was. Looked at a few of his attributes. And we discussed the Trinity. Then we looked at creation. God creating the world. Creating mankind. Creating angels and demons. Now sometime after creation, what happened? The fall happened. We fell into sin and death entered into the world. Um, We were completely... you know, helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. And so what happened is God sent a redeemer, right? He sent Jesus Christ. Um, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ came as a baby and he lived for 33 years. And we, and we discussed his life and, and um, his humanity and his deity and his nature. Um, and then at the, towards the end of Jesus's life, um, or actually all of the life that he lived and the, the death that he died on the cross, that was him accomplishing our redemption, right? That was him winning our atonement. Um, and then after that, sometime after that, salvation is applied to us, that redemption that he bought. Um, and then now what we find ourselves in now is in a season of restoration. We are the church and we are currently trying to work and to fulfill the Great Commission. That's the context that we find ourselves in now. Um, but what's coming is the return of Christ, judgment, um, and then from that judgment, the de- ultimate destination of the wicked and the righteous, heaven and hell. Um, so we're capping up, we're, we're capping off all this conversation with um, trying to understand the end of redemptive history. Okay, um, that's, this has not happened yet. Um, this is something that is going to happen. Now let me tell you what this conversation is going to be about and what this conversation is not going to be about. What we are not going to talk about is who is the Antichrist. We're not going to try to speculate, you know, how to calculate the number of the beast. What does that mean? You know, we're not going to try to see all the similarities. Well, what is this bull? What is what is the locust represent? And what is the city that comes out? What what is all that talking about? We're not we're not going to talk about that. Whenever you understand and you try to study eschatology and end times and all this stuff, the first thing that you realize when you read through the book of Revelation is that this stuff is complicated. It is full of symbolism. It is full of allegory. And during my study for this, and, and I've confessed it you know, many times over the years that I've been a Christian, it's like I realize, man, I do not know as much about this stuff as I should. Um, so granted, what I'm going to talk about tonight is the concrete. Okay, what we know is going to happen. Um, now in the Q&A time after this, um, feel free to ask some questions and we'll, we'll, we'll look into some of the more speculative stuff. And I'll give you some of my theories and interpretations, so on and so forth. But in that Q&A, when those questions come up, just know that I'm stepping away from the Bible. And, I'm, and what I'm saying is not authoritative because 
I don't understand it. <laughs> but what I do understand is that Christ is going to return uh, one day and he is going to judge the living and the dead and the ultimate destination for the living and the dead is going to be either heaven or hell, depending upon what you have done with the knowledge of Christ in this life. So that's, those are the things that we're going to talk about. Um, and it's a lot of it's really good stuff. And so let's get into it. First thing we're going to discuss is the return of Christ. Um, now, in regards to eschatology, um, the study of the end times, the last things, the return of Christ is probably the most talked about um, doctrine in the New Testament. I mean, it is all over the place. Verses that, that directly talk about Christ coming again, verses that infer Christ coming again and kind of refer to it um, or presuppose it. I mean, it is all over the place. I mean, it is the blessed hope that, that we are all um, waiting on, right? And so in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus provides an extended discourse over the end times. Okay, he answers a lot of questions. The conversation begins with his disciples asking him in Matthew 24, verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? That's the questions that the disciples asked him. And then for the rest of chapter 24 and the rest of chapter 25, Jesus goes into an extended sermon, I guess you will, on all these things that are going to happen. He talks a lot in parables, but he also speaks very plainly. And we're going to look at a few of those verses here. Matthew 24, verse 30, Jesus says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, back in, I don't have a scripture reference for you, but back in Daniel, this was prophesied. Uh, there was a vision that Daniel saw, and he said, I see someone like a Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and great glory, right? Jesus is referring back to that. It was prophesied that he would return a second time, and that's what Jesus is talking about. And um, he also says in Matthew twenty six sixty four, But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and then coming on the clouds of heaven. This is right before he was crucified. He was telling Caiaphas, the high priest, he said, Look, from now on, basically right after what's about to happen, right after I die, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And do you remember? That's what Stephen saw, right? Whenever he was martyred, right before he died, he looked up and he looked into heaven and he said, Hey, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus was being literal when he said that, because Stephen literally saw that. And so we understand that Jesus is being literal when he says, and then after that, coming on the clouds of heaven, he's going to come back. And then uh, very plainly in John fourteen three, Jesus says, I will come again and I will take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be also. Now, other than those words of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, the other New Testament offers, authors refer to this as well in Acts 1.11. Um, remember, Jesus ascends into heaven and there's some angels standing there and the disciples are just kind of dumbfounded, staring off into space. And the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back again in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, Acts 1.11 is a verse that we're going to come back to a lot in this discussion. Um, so just keep that fresh on your mind um, because that is, that is a central verse to a lot of issues regarding Christ's return. Now also in Hebrews 9.28, Christ will appear a second time 
Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now remember, he's, when he comes back, he's not going to deal with sin. He's already dealt with sin the first time that he came. He, he bore the weight of it. He overcome it, right? He left it in the grave while he was resurrected. He overcame sin. So he's not going to come back again to deal with sin. He will come back again to deal with sinners. But as far as dealing with sin, that's done. But when he comes back, he's going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Um, and then th- this beautiful verse Revelation twenty two twenty. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And then John's response, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, we have a, a great anticipation in Christ returning. I mean, we should pray that same prayer as John. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, what is, it, what, what is the nature of Christ's coming? What is this going to be like whenever he returns? Well, the first thing that we understand is that this is going to be a personal return of Jesus Christ. It, this isn't going to be like a symbolic return or some kind of a spiritual gesture or anything like that. He will personally return himself. First Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. The same Christ that went up, remember, is the same Christ that's going to come down. Um, he's not going to to just announce from heaven and you're just going to hear his voice like a loudspeaker, I have returned. He is going to physically come. Um, and he will come, when he comes, he will come bodily, right? He's, going to, he's not going to be some kind of spirit or ghost in the same body that he had. That's what he's going to come in, Acts one eleven again. This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back again in the same way that you have seen him go. The same body that he ascended into heaven in, he's going to come back in. And this is going to be a global event. All right, the, the whole world is going to see this. Um, it's not going to be some invisible return. Now, if you understand anything about the, the beliefs of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus Christ returned in an invisible return back in October of 1914, right? And so they believe that it's really weird. I don't know how they reconcile Christ reigning invisibly on the earth now with everything that's going on. Um, but, but that is not the case. When Christ comes back, we're going to know it. The whole world is going to know. There's going to be no mistake in it. If you read Revelation, you see when Christ comes back, some crazy things are going to happen. It's not going to be invisible. It's not going to be people, people confused about it. We will know when Christ returns. The next thing about it is that it will be unexpected. Um, it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to um, anticipate coming like within the next week or so. Um, Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 44, the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And even more startlingly in Mark 13, 32 to 33, in talking about his return, Jesus says, but of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven not even the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, take heed and watch, for you do not know when that time will come. So because of those passages, um, any, any effort to predict the exact timing of Christ whenever he comes, anytime you hear anything like that, you can automatically dismiss it as false. You can automatically dismiss it as wrong. Several people, I mean, how many of you guys were around during, I think, maybe the 80s or whatever, when the, when the professor was predicting the coming of Christ again? He said, look, it's like eight, 1989 or 1988, September 1st, 1980, he's coming. And people were pulling their kids out of school, and they were just putting all their lives on hold because they were anticipating coming, and it didn't happen. And then he said, all right, I was wrong. I was off by one year. It's going to be September 1st, 1999. And then September 1st, 1999 came. Nothing happened. Um, 
and we've had, and in my lifetime, we've had guys do that. Harold Camping, if you guys remember that, he was saying October or something of <laughs> a few years ago or whatever, Christ was going to come back, and he had kind of a cult following. His church, they put everything on hold. They did the same thing. Pulled their kids out of school, quit their jobs, sold their houses, just communed in the church, expecting Christ to come back. And l- listen, that's wrong. That's false. You cannot ignore the weight of these verses that Jesus says you do not know when that is going to be. But what that should do is create a sense of urgency in you. It should create a sense of, man, because I don't know when it's going to be, you should do just as Jesus says here. You should take heed and watch. You don't know when it's going to come. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. Um, But it should create a sense of urgency within you to share the gospel, right? Um, To pursue holiness in yourself because you don't want to be found in sin whenever Jesus returns. Um, Now, the next thing about his return is that it will be triumphant and it will be glorious. Um, If you remember when we talked about the work of Christ and what he did, we separated his work into two stages, right? His humiliation, which was his incarnation, right? The life that he lived and the death that he died, humbling himself, right? And then his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And then we referred to it in week four when we talked about this, um, his, his coming again. This is the this is the end of Christ's exaltation. Uh, this is the final stage of it. Whenever He returns, because it will be triumphant and will and it will be glorious. Um, um, he's yeah yeah yeah. If you remember Matthew twenty four thirty, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and with great glory. That that is the characteristic in which Christ is going to come back again, and then He's going to be um, heralded by angels in great pomp and circumstance when He returns. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Um, if you remember, do you guys remember the, the parable of the rich fool? Um, the, the rich fool, he, he was very rich and he had all these possessions, right? And he said, man, he was talking to his soul. He said, soul, you have everything that you need, but you've got more stuff than you have room to put it. So why don't you just tear down your barns, build bigger barns, put all the rest of your stuff in there. And then so he did so and he said, wow, I have everything I need. I'm just going to eat, drink, and, and be merry. And then God comes that night and he says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And all of these things that you have done, that you've amassed, whose will they be? He's saying that they're not going to belong to anybody. When Christ comes back, what do you want to be found doing? He's going to come in such triumph and such glory. What are you going to be doing whenever he returns? It's, you don't want to be caught spending your life just building your 401k. You don't want to be caught spending your life, you know, doing meaningless, worthless, fruitless things. So what are you supposed to do? What, what are you going to be able to rejoice in whenever Christ comes back? Um, and let me tell you, the answer is making disciples. That is the answer. That is the work that you want to do. So when Christ comes back, you will have something to offer him. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. What Paul is saying is like, look, I'm pouring into you and I'm building you up and I'm presenting everybody mature in Christ so that when he comes, you're going to act as my crown of glory and joy in his coming. 
This is what I'm going to lay at the feet of King Jesus, not barns full of stuff. So when it comes to the return of Christ, it creates a very strong sense of virtue. We need to be about the business that he has called us to be. Or else when he comes, he'll say, you fool. Tonight your life is required of you. Everything that you've amassed, who's it going to be? It's going to be nobody's. So you want to be in the business of making disciples. That's what Paul was about. When he comes, you can lay down lives that you have, men that you have fished, right? So after he comes, then comes the judgment. Um, The final judgment um, in Revelation is portrayed very, very vividly. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, And listen to this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this judgment that is described here, this is something that every single person who has ever lived is going to have to go through. Revelation 20.13, we see the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, this, this talk of the sea and the dead that are in it, and death and Hades and the dead that were in them, them offering up their dead, these are, if you, if you read the Old Testament and then you read um, some Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, what, what, you, will, what you will learn is that these places are kind of considered holding tanks for the dead currently right now. So right now in this moment, there's currently nobody in hell right now. Um, if you remember Jesus on the cross, whenever he was talking to the thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So in the old Testament, what you have is a place called Sheol. This is the land. This is the, the realm of the dead is what that means. This is the place of the dead. So anybody who is dead, goes there, goes to Sheol. Now within Sheol, you have two areas. You have Hades, right? And you have paradise. And so whenever in the Old Testament, and even now when people die, they go to either Hades or they go to paradise. Um, And then if you remember in Ephesians, whenever it says that Christ died, he led a host of captives into heaven, right? He told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He goes to paradise and he preaches to those souls there. He says, I am the awaited Messiah that you have been waiting for all this time. Follow me. And he leads those, that host of captives into heaven with him. So there are people in heaven, but there's nobody currently in hell. People are going to be put into hell at the judgment, right? They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's what hell is. Um, and so every single person is going to have to go through this. Everybody that's in Hades right now, which is symbolized by the sea and Hades and death, right? Every single one of those are going to be thrown out. They're going to be put before God and they're going to be judged. Um, and we all, believer and unbeliever, but unbeliever alike, remember, we're going to be raised to imperishable bodies. We talked about that in the salvation, the glorification of our bodies. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable, right? That ha- that That's true for everybody. Um. Romans 14, 10, and 12, we will all stand 
before the judgment seat of God. Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Paul is including himself and the church in that statement. We're all going to have to go through this judgment. Um, John 5, 20-29, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And then Paul says essentially the same thing in Acts twenty four fifteen. He says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So just as we will be raised into imperishable bodies, the wicked will be raised into imperishable bodies as well, and they will have to stand before God to be judged. Now the final judgment if you've probably noticed in some of the scriptures that we've read, is going to be rendered to each person based upon the things that they have done in this life, right? That's what it says in Revelation 20, 12, and 13. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, the things that they did. And each person was judged according to what they had done, right? Now, that may scare some of us. Man, the things that I've done are wicked, the things that I've done are horrible. And I'm going to be judged according to that? Yes. Yes, you will. But remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. The record of righteousness that Christ earned, he said he came to fulfill the law, right? It wasn't for his own sake. It's for our sake. He fulfilled every single point of the law. And that righteousness was given to us. Remember? Um, Colossians 2.14 says, Having canceled the record of debt, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Every single thing that you've done wrong, that record no longer exists. It was taken away. It was nailed to the cross. Um, and now you've been given the righteousness of Christ. Is it because of him the law has been perfectly fulfilled in you? Romans 8, 3-4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then, of course, one of the most amazing verses that we've looked at repeatedly over and over again in these eight weeks. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember, there was a great exchange that took place. Our sin placed upon Christ. Every single thing that we had done wrong, Christ was considered as having done those things. And every single thing that he has done right, we are now considered as having done those things. And now think about that. Think about the record of righteousness that Christ has earned, the good things that he did, the good deeds that he did, credited to your account. Have you thought about that? If, if you read through the Gospels, okay, I, a friend told me this, um, or I heard a friend say this. He said, look, if you read through the Gospels, and, you, and you, every time you come across something that Jesus did, you can look at that and you can say, that's been credited to me. I'm considered as having done that. You are considered as having served God perfectly without faulting, as having fulfilled the whole law of God, as having cleansed lepers and given sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, as having cast out demons out of those who were, who were oppressed, as having fed the poor and clothed the naked. You are considered as having perfectly testified to the goodness, holiness, and worthiness of God despite all opposition that has come against you. You are considered as having resisted your sin to the point of shedding your blood and as having refused service for yourself, but instead submitted yourself to be the servant of all, washing the feet of those who deserted you and bearing the cross of those who crucified you.
That's your record of righteousness that you stand with before God. You have nothing to fear when it comes to the judgment if you are found in Christ. Now, for those who are not found in Christ, that's it. it's a completely different matter. Um, you have everything to be afraid of because every single thing that you've done still stands against you and testifies against your perfection and against your holiness upon which God will say, depart from me. So, this judgment will be carried out by Christ himself. Um, check out this verse in John 5. I found this interesting. Moreover, this is Jesus talking. The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And then Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 4.1. Jesus Christ is to judge the living and the dead. Now, for those who have rejected him, Christ will look them in the eyes and he will render and administer perfect justice. He will declare them guilty before the entire created order and they will be made known as they truly are, which is wicked and unjustifiable. But for those who have accepted him, Christ will look upon you and he will declare you righteous. He will look upon your record and he will say to you who are not good, nor faithful, nor servants, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. All of the pain and all of the toil and all of the struggle and all of the work that you have done now, before everybody else who ever mocked you and made fun of you, on that day it will be seen as worth it. And your name, written across the sky, redeemed. This is my child. You are perfect. Enter into my rest. So for those who are not in Christ, when they stand at that judgment, um, they will be judged according to the things that they have done. And they will be cast into their final destination, which is hell, which is the lake of fire. Hell is the final destination for the wicked. Matthew twenty five forty one. Then he will say to those on his left, this, he separates the sheep from the wolves, right? Puts the wolves on his left and the sheep on his right. He will say to those on his left, depart from me you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20, verse 10. So he says, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, well, what is that? The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the same place that the wolves are going to go. The same place. Hell is conscious torment. That's the way that the Bible describes it. Everybody in hell is consciously aware of the pain that they are experiencing. This is seen in Luke 16, 22-24, the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus served the rich man. The um, rich man mis mistreated Lazarus. They both died, right? Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to heaven. He goes to paradise. And Lazarus finds himself in, in Sheol, right? In Hades, is the, in hell. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. He was consciously aware of everything that was going on. Um, and then later on, he said, Abraham, go, go to my family and tell them um, about this place. And he says, for I have five brothers. Go and tell them so that they may warn them lest also they come into this place of torment. 
Um, he was very well, very well aware um, of the torment that was there. This was conscious torment. Um, a lot of people like to think that maybe people are just annihilated. They're just wiped out. That's it. They don't exist anymore. They're not experiencing any pain, but they're not experiencing any pleasure either. They're just gone. Um, but that's not the way that hell is described. It is conscious torment, and this and this torment lasts forever, for eternity. It never ends. Matthew 25, verse 46, Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And, and terrifying verse, Isaiah 66, 24, and Then they will go forth, and they will look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die. And their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Hell is eternal torment. It never ends. Hell is also separation from the presence of God and His restraining grace. So we see this in um, 2 Thessalonians um, 1, 8-9. Um, he says he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. You are separated from God whenever you are cast into the outer darkness. Now that, guys, is the true wrath of God right there. Now think back to Romans 1, okay? Romans 1, you have a people that are in sin, right? And it says they keep exchanging their knowledge of God for a lie, right? They keep, they keep um, choosing to sin rather than to acknowledge God. And so what happens? God, it says repeatedly God hands them over to their sin. So these people who are wicked, don't miss this, these people who are wicked, who are alive here on this earth now, for God to be able to hand them over, then what that means is that he was restraining something within them. Right? He was restraining sin within them. This is called common grace. This is a common grace that God gives to everybody that prevents sin from just completely devouring us. Right? So, but these people that did not acknowledge God said, okay, I'm going to give you over to the sin. And repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, God gives them over to deeper sin. He gives them over to deeper sin. He gives them over to deeper sin until eventually he just takes his hand away. And these people experience what is the closest thing to hell on earth. God completely removes his presence from him. Sin has its way with him and it devours them. Um, that's what hell is like. That's what hell is like. If you remember when Christ was on the cross, whenever he bore the wrath of God, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The true wrath of God is for him to say, depart from me. Get out of my presence. You're separated from me. Now that restraining grace that God gives is completely removed. And in an indestructible body, you are cast into a pit of outer darkness. And for eternity, sin hath its way with you. Your worm does not die. The fire is never quenched. For eternity, you grow deeper and deeper into lust. Deeper and deeper into anger. Deeper and deeper into pride deeper and deeper into depression. And, and it never stops. It keeps on going forever and ever. Now, I, I don't know if what the Bible says about hell being flames and fire, if that's actually literal or not. But listen, even if it is, that is the least of anybody's worries in hell. Compared to being completely enslaved to sin forever, 
and never being set free from that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, listen to this. This is, this is what um, J.I. Packer said. He said, look at the cross, therefore, and you see what form God's judicial reaction to human sin will finally take. What form is that? In a word, it is withdrawal and deprivation of good. On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his Father's presence and love. All sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. All enjoyment of God and of created things. All ease and solace of friendship were taken from him. And in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. That's what hell is. And when you take all of this understanding of hell and you, and you put it all together, it's easy to understand it to see why the Bible constantly refers to it as the second death. You are dying for eternity. But um, praise the Lord that that is not our destination, right? For those who are in Christ, that's not where we go. We go to heaven. Heaven is the final destination for those who have been redeemed by Christ. And put simply, heaven is the dwelling place of God. And in a sense, it is, it is in heaven that he is able to make his presence most fully known to us. Okay? Um, Ezekiel 48.35, And the name of the city, this is talking about heaven, from that time on will be, the Lord is there. Right? That, that's what heaven is. It's the presence of God. The Lord is there. That's what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. What makes hell hell is that God is not there. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. He is there. Um, remember Jesus prayed, our Father who art in heaven. That's where God is now. Elsewhere in Isaiah, he says, heaven is my throne. That's what God says. That's where he is currently reigning around. Now, heaven is is a real place, okay? It's not just a state of mind. Now, I'm guilty of, of whenever I try to think of heaven, like what comes to my mind is just kind of like a dream, you know? Or like maybe just ethereal, like floating around, and it's like surely we're not going to be able to, you know, really feel just like this now, but no, that's not the case. Heaven is a completely real place. It's not a state of mind. It's not some spiritual ethereal realm where we're all floating around. Um, it's, it's real. It is even more real than this world that we live in now. Um, it is a true, real place. Jesus says as much in John fourteen two. I go to prepare a place for you. It's a real place that we go. And remember Acts one eleven. I told you we were going to come back to it. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, right? He went into a place. He went somewhere to a different place other than earth. Heaven is a real place that exists. Now, and in heaven, heaven is going to resemble um, in some ways the world that we live in now, right? Um, what we what we see is that Jesus says um, we will eat and we will drink with him at the at the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? So there's going to be eating, there's going to be drinking, um, and then also in Matthew twenty six twenty nine, Jesus says, "I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom." There's going to be a, a celebration. There's going to be something there, and, and something to notice about this. So. This is after Jesus, or this is at the Last Supper, right? And so Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this again. I'm not going to enjoy this again until you are finally there with me in heaven, and then I'll enjoy it with you there. So 
in some way right now, in some small way, Jesus, the risen glorified Savior, all right, who has paid his dues, certainly, he is still depriving himself of some form of privilege just for us. He's saving that for us. It's beautiful. That's what heaven is. Heaven is going to be Christ lavishing his love upon us. Experiencing that pleasure with us. Fellowship with God. Um, Revelation 22.1, the river of the water of life, right, will flow through the throne. Will flow from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Right? So there's going to be rivers. There's going to be streets. There's going to be buildings. There's going to be roads, right? I mean, it's going to look a lot like this. And then... The tree of life will bear 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. There's going to be trees, but also notice that there's going to be passing of time. It says that the tree is going to produce its fruit each month, right? Um, So there's going to be passing of time. It's not like we're going to live in some timeless state. We're still going to be finite people. The bodies that we have now are going to be perfected, and they're going to be just as real then as they are now, except we're going to be immortal. So because we're finite, we're not omnipotent and omnipresent, right? We're not spirits. We're going to have to exist in a succession of moments, right? Time is still going to exist in heaven. So think of the reality that you experience now, okay? And remove all sin from that and the distortion that sin brings and bring into that the full unyielding presence of God, and that's heaven, Again, that's why I'm guilty of thinking that heaven is going to be like a dream. Because I, I just can't understand that. I can't comprehend that. There is no sin in heaven. We see in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. And if there is no sin, then there is also no pain, no death, or any uh, suffering. Revelation uh, 21. Anyway, Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now the righteous, us, we will be glorified in this in heaven, and we will serve the Lord for eternity. Matthew thirteen forty three. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That is a glorified body that is not hindered by sin. We will shine like the sun, perfectly reflecting the glory of God, which is what we're supposed to do now. We will do that perfectly in heaven, and we will shine like the sun. Jesus says. Um, Revelation twenty two three. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. So notice. The connection here. There's not going to be any curse. And his servants will serve him. Service now and work now, right? That's part of the curse, right? By the sweat of your brow, you will work the ground. It's hard. And, and, and we don't like it, right? But there will be no curse, yet we will still be serving him. This will be enjoyable. This will be, this is what is going to bring true joy to the Christian. That curse is going to be taken away. And now the work that you are still going to do, the service you are still going to offer God is going to be pleasing. It's not going to be hindered by sin. It's not going to be by the sweat of your brow that you will do this. We will serve him. The curse will be completely removed. Um, but all of that is nothing compared to the, to the true core 
of the glory of heaven. What, what, what makes heaven glorious? Um, check this out, Romans 8, 20-21. I want to show you something. For the creation was subjected to futility. So this is talking about the whole entire earth, right? And we talked about this in sin, in the class on sin as well. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, him who subjected it in hope, that has to be God, right? A lot of people try to say that's Adam because he, he ate it and threw one man's sin into the world. No, because Adam didn't do that in hope. He had no hope of what was going to come from eating that fruit. God did that. God subjected the creation to futility, to sin, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the same freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now remember back to creation, okay, week two. God created everything, and he said it is good. And then he created man, he said, this is very good. I'm pleased with my creation. He was so pleased that he dusted off his hands, and he kicked back, and he relaxed for a day. And just beheld his creation. Okay? He said it was very, very good. But then God looks ahead, forward into redemptive history, and he sees this glory that the children of God are going to obtain, and he says, wow, that is glorious. This, all that I've created, that is very, very good, I'm going to subject it to sin so that it can also obtain this. Now, this over here, the glory, the freedom of glory that we're going to achieve has to be greater than a sinless creation before the fall that God said was very good, right? Or else it would make zero sense for God to subject it in hope that it would attain this because this is greater. So stars that were shining so much brighter than anything that we've ever seen before, a world completely unmarred by sin, God subjected that. And he said, this is greater. This is greater. That's the glory that we're going to have, right? It's amazing. Um, So in heaven, right? The new heavens, new earth, creation is going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored, right? And the the creation before that was probably beyond anything that we could ever even comprehend, completely free from sin, this is going to be greater. The city that we're going to be in is going to be perfect. The, The skies, okay? The sunsets. The, the oceans, the trees. It's going to be so far beyond anything that we can comprehend. Okay? Um, but check this out. In that city, there's no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. Its lamp is the lamb. First Timothy says that God dwells in light unapproachable. That's where God dwells in light unapproachable. You can't see him. It's too bright. Right. And in this city, our faces are going to shine like the sun. The the stars are going to shine brighter than they ever have before. But even in the midst of all of that, Christ is going to shine brighter still. Its lamp is going to be the lamb. That's the glory of heaven. That is the beauty of heaven. That is the hope that we have, is that we will be able to behold him in all of his glory, in all of his beauty. And 1 John says that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he truly is. That is freedom from everything here. And that is heaven.